Spencer Belpert and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Meg Rowley, and on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, I welcome to the program Fangraphs writer Craig Edwards. Craig first attempts to lessen your panic in the wake of Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s slow start in the majors. He will then attempt to dial up your panic, or at least your concern, at the potential effects of Sinclair Broadcasting's recent acquisition of 21 regional sports networks, a move that gives the controversial media company control of the broadcast of nearly half of Major League Baseball's franchises. Finally, we indulge in a little Cardinals talk, for Craig is a Cardinals fan. All of that is coming up, but first it is my obligation to tell you that Fangraphs memberships are available at Fangraphs.com. For the monthly cost of one Mother's Day card, you can support all the great work at Fangraphs, including the fine analysis of the aforementioned Craig Edwards, Eric Longenhagen and Kylie McDaniel's coverage of the upcoming MLB draft, Jay Jaffe on early season defensive highlights and lowlights, and Devin Fink on various hitters who have and have not been good in the early going. You may also, for a slightly greater sum, purchase an ad-free membership and enjoy Fangraphs without banner ads, facilitating faster loading times. You should also, assuming you are on good terms with her, call your mom on Mother's Day. If you are not on good terms with her, please feel free to listen to this podcast instead. That bit of business being complete, I take you to my conversation with Craig Edwards, writer for Fangraphs, which begins right now. Craig, Craig Edwards, you're back on Fangraphs Audio. Welcome. I sure am. Thank you. Here you are. You are here today. You have written a number of things for the site lately, but I thought you would come on and we would talk about uh, two things that are inspiring people's panic to go in potentially opposite directions. First, to to not maybe panic about Vladimir Guerrero Jr., as there are some people who are panicking. And then we're going to perhaps uh, not inspire panic, but maybe raise an alarm about what Sinclair Broadcasting's purchase of some regional sports networks uh, might mean for baseball viewing types who read our site. So first, though, I thought we would start with this piece you wrote on uh, Vladimir Guerrero. Actually, I will start by saying, Craig, how are you? I'm doing doing quite well. Good. How's the baby? Uh, she's doing great. Uh, yeah. She's, you know... About 14 pounds Aww. past the three-month mark a week ago. So everything's going well. Well, good job. You you guys have kept her alive all this time. You're doing great. She's a happy, <laughs> healthy, chubby baby. Ah, th- those are the best. Well, oh, I was about to make a, a chubby baby transition to Vlad, but we won't be quite so... <laughs> hacky uh with our with our transitions but you wrote earlier this week about uh vladimir guerrero's start uh pro start which has been uh, i think for people who had expectations of his bat being as eric longenhagen described it messianic uh when we ranked him as the uh, first overall prospect in baseball this year along with many other people and outlets are perhaps a little disappointed because he has been he has not been messianic he has through uh, about 10 games had a, a pretty anemic 23 wrc plus over 41 plate appearances or so and so there there have been some folks who have felt panicked about that. Do you think they should be panicked, Craig? Do you feel panic about Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? I, I do not. Um, I would consider myself a relatively calm person to begin with, so um, <laughs> I, I don't know that I, I am the type of person that would necessarily begin to panic, but when I notice panic in others, I, you know, I'm just trying to help soothe any fears that they might have because... Well. You know, sometimes 10 games is just 10 games. 
Well, that's that's a very nice impulse, I think, to try to soothe the concerns of others. You you looked at other top prospects uh, who debuted since. Geez, I edited this, and I can remember that you did that since 1995. You looked at Baseball America's top two prospects each year, uh, and there were 19 position players among those ranks. And then you kind of looked at a couple of different slices of their careers to see how they ended up faring. Uh, and we, we will link to this piece uh, in, in the blog post that goes up with this. But for those who, for whatever reason, didn't read it, what were your, what were your findings? Uh, apart from people not maybe wanting to panic, people shouldn't panic. What did you find other than that? Well, I think that, I mean, one thing to note is that his start is bad relative to, you know, all these other top prospects. Um, most top prospects start off pretty well, and that's generally because they're good players. Sure. But for him to start off poorly, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. I, I looked at these, you know, as close to 20 players and how they started and you know, roughly through, I did 40-ish, you know, once a player crossed the 40 plate appearance threshold, that's where I figured out how they did. And then I looked at how they did over their next 600 plate appearances, as well as how they did over their career. And I found out that what happens in their first 41 plate appearances has almost nothing to do with how they're going to do over the next 600 or over the, the rest of their career. You know, I think that it's easy to when you see something for the first time i think that it's it's only natural to place higher emphasis on what you see that one time sure. um and i think that that's a lot of what's what's going on here and i think that especially considering you know there were calls to promote him a year ago and maybe if he had been promoted a year ago for a time, you know, even a few weeks and struggled and then was sent back down and, you know, came back this year, uh, maybe he would be more, more prepared. We we don't know for sure. That is the exact path that, that Mike Trout followed. Um, right. He came up and, and struggled and he was, he's one of the comps in, in the piece that he, he started off very un-Mike Trout-like. And then, you know, after, you know, 100 plate appearances, then he was very Mike Trout-like and has been Mike Trout for a very long time. But whether or not a player started off really, really well or very, very poorly, uh, it didn't really translate to how, how, they, how they did uh, later on. One minor thing I found is that, you know, of the, of the players that did not end up doing well um, most of them posted very low walk rates in their first 10 games, uh, which Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has not. Right. Yeah, he's still, he has walked at a almost 10% clip. You also noted that he has not really been thrown much in the way of strikes to hit. People tend to seem to be pitching him very carefully and not giving him much that he could drive, which given um, sort of his... Uh, prospect profile is perhaps not surprising. Yeah, Mike Trout, you you did a you did a little you did a nifty little trick where you you showed the top debuts, but you didn't tell people who they were. So I'm sure there were some folks who looked at what would be Mike Trout, what we would learn later in your pieces, Mike Trout, in, in this table, and thought, oh well, that that schmo who has a you know a 21% strikeout rate and a 52 WRC plus and is only got a 238 on base like he's probably some chump but he wasn't he was Mike Trout yeah and, and another one of those chumps was Mark Teixeira um, right so you know not very chump like no they're not chumps tricked you 
Yeah, you were tricksy. It's good. It's good to, uh, you know, make people guess a little bit because I think it's very funny. I think you're right that people um, tend to place outsized importance on the first impression they have of players. You you noted in your piece several more established major leaguers who are quite good and understood to be quite good. And I think we all think of as being very talented hitters, you know, Paul Goldschmidt's and Corey Seekers and Jose Altuve's of the world who, you know, have had little, little slumps uh, at the beginning of the season. And we don't, you know, we don't think much of it apart from just wondering if uh, anything's going on with them, but we, we don't have that alter our impression of them as players. But because these are the only 41 plate appearances we have for Vlad, everybody gets a little bit nervous. It's kind of silly. Yeah, and we also do that at the very beginning of the season uh, right. for all players. Right. Yes, F- Fangraphs, uh, I, you know, every article we publish in the first like month and a half, I think pretty much every single one has at least like four small sample size caveats in it. And it's important for us to do that because there are small sample sizes. But I wish that we could just put a banner at the top of the block for the first month being like every every one of them, all of them, <laughs> they all have small sample size caveats. Nothing means anything unless it does. We don't know yet. Except for this one thing. Except for this one thing, which we can feel we can feel pretty confident about. Uh, I think that people can feel optimistic. It is wild that... <sighs> You know, how I wonder how many, this might be a fun, I, this might be a fun exercise. Jeff probably wrote about this at some point just in a search to write something, but I wonder if Mike Trout has had another 42 plate appearance stretch as poor as that 2011 plate appearance stretch was. Hmm. Hmm. That hmm. might be fun. That might also be like a very long query that results in one single sentence. <laughs> I don't know if that's yeah. a full article or not, but... uh Actually... I think it can be done uh, fairly easily. Let's. Uh, I'm going to go to uh, ten games okay. on the graphs page. Yeah, I'm sure this this makes for a scintillating audio. That's okay. We have graphs page. We're fan graphs. Yeah. <laughs> also, the W-R-C magic of radio plus. is that Dylan will shorten up the sequence a little uh, bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, so for those who might want to follow along on their computers. You can go to Mike Trout's page, go to graphs, which is right next to season stats, do uh, a few different things, and oh, there we have it. Mike Trout had a 10-game stretch in 2014, whereas weighted runs created plus was 44. Mm. Uh, he had one last year where it was 52. Oh my goodness. Yeah. What a bum. What a bum. Just those two? Below 50, it looks like. Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Mike Trout's pretty good. I think uh-huh. I think we're pretty lucky to get to watch Mike Trout. And I imagine we will um, remain feeling lucky that we get to watch Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in, in pretty short order here. He also, sorry to interrupt. No, please. Last year, 352 at a 10-game stretch, <laughs> which is considerably better. <laughs> oh, goodness. He is a marvel. He's a marvel who we get to watch. I will be at the risk of duplicating some content that uh, listeners may have heard if they listen to Effectively Wild. I talked about this with Ben a little bit, but I, I will be very curious to see how the pitching approach changes for him over this next little bit. Because as I've said on this podcast, and as you noted in the piece, and I said that you noted in the piece, he really has not been getting much in the way of strikes to hit, which, you know, was contributing to that walk rate, but... 
You'd figure at some point he should be able to press the question. Well, you wonder if nobody wants to be the guy who gives up the first homer. Oh, I like that very much as a potential explanation for, I mean, in addition to like all of the obvious baseball reasons that you should just pitch him very carefully. I like that quite, quite a bit as a potential explanation. Hmm. But then you'd get to be, for better or worse, you'd get to be on highlight reels. If his career goes the way that we all expect it to, you'd get to be on highlight reels for a very, very long time. Yes, but on the for better or worse, that's yeah. only in the or worse category. I wonder if there is a posture that you would feel like the most dignified assuming if you're the one who gives up the first home run. I feel like all of the uh, starters who are going to face the Blue Jays over the next little bit should practice in in case they're the they're the ones. Yeah. Brad Thompson, who's a former Cardinals pitcher and now a broadcaster for the Cardinals, I can't remember where they were, but I think as in Washington, maybe, uh, if you hit a home run like a really far distance into some section, they put a plaque on the section in the player's name. And Brad Thompson had given up one of the one of these homers. Oh my gosh. And he, he asked if his name was on there. And he was <laughs> he seemed slightly disappointed that, that it wasn't. So I mean, may, maybe somebody would, would be honored to have given up the first home run to Vlad Guerrero Jr. I mean, I suppose that it it probably depends on the pitcher, right? Because some pitchers are are both more anonymous now than than others and are likely to, even if they aren't super anonymous now, perhaps fade from view once time has passed and we're, we're kind of looking back on their careers as part of baseball history. So I guess if... You know, if Vlad goes on to have a long career and hits like we think, and as uh, you know, your your little study suggests he probably will, and our understanding of his bat is accurate, you know, he might he might be a, a Hall of Famer, and you could be the guy who you know when when Jay writes his Hall of Fame <laughs> profile, I'm just gonna make Jay work forever. You know, his name will be there. You'd be a part of history. Yep. There's there's certainly something to being a part of history. I guess. I guess. Well, that that uh I think is enough of us telling people not to panic. I don't think very many people were like legitimately panicked, but I think there were some folks who were quite panicked. Most of them seems like they were Blue Jays fans, but you know, they haven't had some and they haven't had much in the way of good stuff lately, so I guess we can kind of forgive them feeling anxious. But one thing we should probably all feel a little anxious about is this Sinclair business. You've kind of made this a, a little beat of yours, Craig. Written yeah. about Sinclair quite a bit in the last, you know, six, eight months. Well, they've been quite active. They have been quite active. They were sort of emerging as a rumored purchaser of several regional sports networks that broadcast baseball. And this week they have emerged as a purchaser of several. I think twenty one you said when you when you wrote about it. Is that right? Yes, they have purchased twenty one. Some of those aren't like solely like baseball, like, you know, Fox Sports sure. Tennessee or Carolina or whatever. They broadcast baseball games, but it's like a duplicate of another regional channel. Got um, it. So it's fourteen teams in addition to the partnerships that they've already established with the Cubs, and the Yankees. So more than half of baseball will have their games broadcast by, you know, a distribution system set up by Sinclair, who previous to now had, you know, almost no involvement in baseball 
very little involvement in sports in general. They do own the tennis channel, but their primary form or their form of business before this was owning local networks, you know, like a, a Fox and ABC, CBS, etc. That was their main way to, to make money. And I think most of the time you don't necessarily hear about the owners of these, you know, like Hearst owns a lot and you don't really hear about Hearst, but the Sinclair sort of made news. And, and I think it was, I want to say Deadspin had a piece on it where they synced up like yeah. every single broadcast throughout the country of them all saying the same op-ed. And, you know, it looked a little unnatural for that to happen because generally you think, you know, the local broadcasters have sort of more information or like better they're supposed to be they're local because they you know speak to you the the viewer about issues right. that are important to you that are going on in your community etc and that's one of the reasons why the fcc has a rule saying that no single broadcaster can be in more than 39 percent of the tv households in in the country and sinclair is now at 39 percent. they tried to get around that when they were purchasing the Tribune company who they had WGN in Chicago as well as, you know, like a dozen or so stations in some of the biggest markets. But the FCC said no, that they couldn't do that. Uh, even trying to skirt around rules, they were, I don't know, going right through them to sure. as a potential violation. So they Sinclair couldn't spend their money on that. And so now they they've switched to to these RSNs. Because they do not fall within those percentile restrictions, right? These these are counted separately from, you know, them owning your local ABC affiliate or what have you. Yeah, you can essentially buy as many cable companies, you know, as as you want without running afoul of of those antitrust FCC issues. But the over the air traditional broadcast networks, that's where the rules get sort of applied. The, the only issue with the cable channels is sort of antitrust stuff, which is sure. how they ended up with Sinclair in the first place, because Disney, which owns ESPN, was trying to buy all of these RSNs and did buy them all, but they were forced to sell them by regulators in order to get that sale approved. Right. And so now Sinclair is in a position where they, they have this large chunk of sort of the baseball broadcasting pie. And... Listeners might think, well, you know, it's not like you're necessarily going to have an editorial in the middle of a baseball broadcast. Why is, why is this necessarily an issue? But they have engaged in some some negotiating tactics in the past that, that raise concerns, at least for you, uh, and I think for all of us, particularly as it pertains to the to the tennis channel, right? Yeah, and, and you know, like you say, you know, fundamentally, you know, we might say, well, what's the difference between Fox owning all these versus ESPN owning all these versus Sinclair owning all these? And, you know, in theory, you know, it might not matter all that much. But because of Sinclair's history in terms of negotiating deals with with cable companies, there are some concerns that they might take very hard lines with some of these cable companies, which might end up with you know, situations similar to what we have in Los Angeles, where half of the market can't get Dodgers baseball. And for someone who is more concerned about baseball fans than necessarily how well businesses do, as I am, 
that would be bad for baseball and baseball fans if you know the fans can't see when their games are on and what Sinclair has done in the past with the tennis channel is they've said hey you can broadcast you know our local CBS or our local Fox or local ABC that we own but you're going to have to put the tennis channel on the lowest tier possible and most people view uh, the tennis channel as sort of like, uh, you know, a, a niche that should be in its own sports tier. And that's generally how a lot of the non-main sports channels are. They're not on, they're not on the main cable, you know, setup that you, right. that you would get. And when cable companies said, no, we're not going to do that, there had been blackouts. There's been blackouts, I think. The biggest one was the Dish Network. Um, I think there was one in Seattle for a, mm-hmm. a short time. And then even when Sinclair's negotiated with sort of newer, you know, like, uh, you know, your YouTube TV, your Hulu, YouTube TV put Tennis Channel on, I think. But uh, Hulu didn't want to. And uh, so Sinclair said, well, we're not going to give you our local, any of our local CBS uh, channels and there was a 20 some throughout the country and so right. the national cbs company said well we actually want our broadcasts on hulu so they undercut them and said you you know you can put it on there and and i think the the concern is is that when you have an even more sort of powerful network than just the tennis channel when you have you know 16 baseball teams and channels throughout the country that they're going to use this to either A, get a lot more money from cable companies, which ends up with everyone getting a higher bill and potentially could accelerate more and more people dropping cable, which is the main way that people watch baseball, or it could end up with a blackout and people not being able to watch their team at all. And when you wrote this piece, that was before Sinclair had even talked about their potential gambling, integrating gambling into this, into this, which you haven't written about yet. I don't know if you checked in on, on some of the details there. And as an aside, Craig, if you haven't, we can just uh, move on from this and we'll have Dylan cut this whole <laughs> little bit out. We'll no, just be like, Hey, Meg didn't prepare me for this question. She was busy editing. That was on her. Uh, what's this gambling business? Never mind. We'll move on to something else. Hey, Dylan, leave it all in. Ah, perfect. Uh, so, yeah, the, <laughs> what, what Sinclair has said they were going to do is potentially do uh, sort of a second broadcast that would run simultaneously with the regular broadcast where they would get advertising from casinos and that sort of thing, and they would put up like live sort of prop bet type things like, I don't know, will the next batter strike out or, you know, will someone score or run this inning, that sort of thing. You know, I think as as numerous people have, have pointed out, if you've ever watched a baseball game on the internet, that's not possible because right. there is a, you know, 10 second to 30 second to sometimes a minute lag. I know that there are lots of people who live close by stadiums who can't watch baseball games on the internet without having big moments spoiled by loud cheering that yes. comes in ahead of the broadcast. So there's some technological issues to, to get by with that. And and I think that one of the more troubling aspects, you know, even if you know you don't care if people gamble or, you know, what happens with that, is that they're they're approaching uh these RSNs as a potential revenue stream without concern for the long-term impact for for baseball fans they're they're looking at it in order to find a 
niche customer now right. who can provide them with more income as opposed to you know growing the game in, into the future and i think that that's that's one of baseball's main problems right now is that you know the 6 to 15 year olds are are the people you need to have in 20 years you know buying the season tickets and buying whatever cable packages there are but if they can't watch those games because their parents you know don't have cable or don't care or you know if, if they're if they're not going to switch their cable provider over a dispute about a, a baseball team then those kids aren't going to be able to watch the games they're not going to get hooked on baseball like you know many others did i know like i'm i'm old enough to where you know i was able to watch like one game a week and that that was right. that was just it you know right. so you, you watch the year one game a week and you play little league and and that's how you become a baseball fan and it's important that that kids still have access and, and anything that sort of disturbs that potential for kids to to, to have that access uh, is trouble for, troublesome for the the long-term future uh, of baseball and when you're partnering with someone who does not care at all about that you know that's that that could be an issue yeah i think it's you know <laughs> We can be, I think, at times a little, maybe not overly romantic, because that puts more judgment on it than I necessarily mean to, but I think that we sometimes want the the magic and majesty of baseball to stand in defiance of like business practice in a way that is maybe not realistic, but at the same time, like you want them to care a little bit, right? You want it to matter to them some that like they have the responsibility of broadcasting you know, gosh, pick a market. Well, I was going to say the Rays and Marlins. I don't know that that will have an appreciable impact on how many people watch Rays and Marlins games. That was very rude of me, and I apologize. Uh, the Rays are great fun. The Marlins remain terrible. Uh, but, like, you know, if you're a Cardinals fan living in Columbia, Jefferson City, you're going to maybe have to contend with with these guys, right? If you're a Rangers fan in Amarillo, Texas... You might have to contend with Sinclair. If you're a, a Tigers fan in uh, Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, Battle Creek. <laughs> and they don't care, as you said. So it's it's disconcerting. It seems to further decouple the fan experience from the ability of someone, even if it's not always teams or the league, to make money off of baseball as an enterprise. And that seems troublesome because we, we kind of need the fans to stick around, as you said, and we need them to inspire new fans if we're going to continue to have baseball as a thing. Yeah. And I mean, what what it sort of feels like is that, you know, there's this general overarching cable bubble or whatever you want to call it, is that right. there are fewer and fewer cable subscribers. And, you know, it's still surviving and it's still extremely profitable at some point it won't be and and we right. don't know exactly when that's going to happen but what this feels like is you know someone coming in for a last big cash grab you know before it dies right and what you want is to have someone with the vision to outlast this last big cash grab to make sure that you're still sustainable right. into the future. And, you know, Major League Baseball is well situated given, you know, the, the technology they have through MLB TV, but uh, they weren't able to come up with a bid to top Sinclair's and sort of control their own destiny. And so they've placed it in the hands of, of someone else. And it's not like what Sinclair is doing is necessarily different from 
what companies have been doing for the last few decades. The problem is that this was an opportunity to do something different and, and right. move forward. And, and this is more of a step backwards. Right. And it's affecting, I mean, it wouldn't be good for this to affect any teams, but I mean, to give, to, to sort of remind people of the teams that we're talking about here would include the Diamondbacks, the Braves, the Cubs, although not in a complete ownership perspective, as you, as you noted, the Reds, Cleveland Indians, the Tigers, the Royals, the Angels, the Marlins, the Brewers, the Twins, the Yankees, again, in partnership, the Padres, the Cardinals, the Rangers, and the Rays, right? That's not great. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of the teams, actually. It's a lot of the teams. It's a lot of very fun teams. You mm -hmm. know, it's a lot of teams that have good, exciting young players that might inspire a new generation of baseball fans to be baseball fans. Exactly. Now it's going to be, you know, it's going to be harder potentially for people to watch Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis Jr. That seems bad. Yeah. 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 Mm, bummer. That's not yeah. great. Got, got to watch baseball to like it, I think. I think that's that's a part of it. I think it's a I think it's a not small I think it's a not small part of it. I think that especially for this generation, I don't know if young people have the same experience of having listened to or listening to now baseball on the radio. I don't know how resonant a fan experience that is for for younger baseball fans. I cannot answer that question. Either. Yeah, I don't know. I I would imagine that that viewing is the primary means of of taking in uh, baseball, which you know that makes sense. It's a lot of fun to watch. Although people should listen on the radio too, because it's a surprisingly pleasant experience. And go to games. And go to games. Yeah, go to games. Although if you are going to a Mets game, don't bring a backpack. They're going to yell at you about that starting May twentieth. It's been a weird couple of weeks for baseball. We need more exciting, happy stories. We've had so many bummers of late. Do you want to talk about your Cardinals for a minute? Yeah, we can. Yeah. Hey, so uh, so you got these Cardinals. They uh, when when Ben Clemens came on the program, they I believe were in first place. Now they are a game and a half out of first. They're in third. How do you like your Cardinals so far? How are you enjoying those Cardinals? Well, I, I'm upset that Ben jinxed them. Oh no! And what a terrible thing for a new yeah. writer to do. He's going to feel so guilty. <laughs> um, you know, it's. I think uh, the the Cardinals have a good set of of position players. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the bullpen is sort of rounding into shape, and I think that there are some some big big questions uh, about the rotation. Yes. You know, Miles Michaelis has one good season, and he's been a little bit inconsistent this season, giving up too many home runs. Jack Flaherty has had one good season, and he's also been a little bit inconsistent, but uh, those are the two best ones. Um, yeah. And and so I think that if those guys round into shape, you have a fine, you know, one, two, if you had a really solid three, four, five. But Adam Wainwright is, is 37 years old and has not been good for several seasons. And so uh, his performance has been encouraging so far, but you know, how long is that going to last? Yeah. How long is it going to last for Michael Walker? Uh, it's already not lasting for Dakota Hudson. And in the minors, they've got more players who are of the caliber of Dakota Hudson or not as good as Dakota Hudson. Right. And so unless Alex Reyes can, you know, not punch walls, um, 
so that he can, don't, you know. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, even even if it's a, you're not not your throwing hand, still just yeah, just still don't, just don't do just, it. Just don't do it. You yeah. know, he still has the potential to be that. You know that that starter that could step into the rotation, Carlos Martinez, is is the same way. But apparently, he's gearing up for the bullpen, and hmm. you know it's it's just hard to see the Cardinals' current five pitchers plus the guys who are currently starters in the minors lasting a, a full season in a very competitive division in a very competitive league. And and I I think that. At some point, they're going to have to go outside of the organization to to sort of get a, a top three type starter. Mm. Do you think they could be in the market for someone like, say, a Matthew Boyd? Um, they, Boyd? they could be. Um, Matthew Boyd, Marcus Stroman, Madison yeah. Bumgarner. Yeah, bum bum. You wrote about him recently, too. Would you be excited to have this version of Madison Bumgarner on your favorite baseball team, Craig? Uh, you know, Madison Bumgarner has not been... Uh, my favorite player as someone who roots for the Cardinals. Sure, I can, can understand why that might be true. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's looked good uh, of late in, in terms of adding his arm to the Cardinals rotation. It would be a, a very, very big benefit to the team, I think. I think he's, Madison Bumgarner has so far shown that he's much better than he has been the, the last few seasons. Yeah, throw, throwing harder, throwing more fastballs, unlike many starters in baseball, as you noted in your piece about him. Are you encouraged by this uh, Cardinals defense? As as Jay Jaffe, Jay Jaffe wrote a piece today about the good, the bad, and the ugly of team defenses. It comes with its standard caveats about defensive metrics, especially this early in the season with this small of a sample. But he noted that the defense is really picking up that rotation, which has a, a 4-5 ERA and a 5-1-8 FIP. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Cardinals have also benefited from giving up a lot of solo home runs. Um, <laughs> you know, that's and that's that's helpful as well. You know, they the Cardinals moved Paul Goldschmidt to first base, and that that helps first base. But it's yeah. probably a wash when you're moving Matt Carpenter back back to third. But it's yeah. obviously much much better than the first half of last season when they gave Jose Martinez a shot there, and yeah. it, it didn't work out. I, I think that. The outfield defense, when it's Harrison Bader in center field, Ozuna in left, and you know Dexter Fowler in right, I think that's a very good defensive outfield. I think the one with Dexter Fowler in center field and Jose Martinez in right field is 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 not so good. Suboptimal, um, one so might say. If Harrison can, Bader can, you know, he he'd been hurt a little bit, and Dexter Fowler had been uh, hitting well, and so had Jose Martinez. But if Harrison Bader can get back into the lineup regularly with more of a, you know, sort of platoon situation between uh, Fowler and Martinez. I think that that would be good for the defense. And I think that it would, they would, they would keep things going. I, I think Harrison Bader's numbers in center field probably have a lot to do with what Jay Jaffe had noted as well as uh, both Paul DeYoung and, and Colton Wonger. good up the middle. I think DeYoung's yeah. a, a bit underrated as a shortstop because I don't know, he doesn't, he doesn't look like he's going to be, you know, he, he doesn't he's, look he's not that stampy. fast, you know. No. Yeah, he's he's not he's not fast, not incredibly smooth, but uh, he does a does a good job out there. I would imagine that given Paul DeYoung's offensive performance, that much about him will uh, not much about him will remain underrated for very long, because uh, he is going to inspire continued long looks at his at his season, because he is currently uh, the third 
just a tick behind Christian Yelich for the third most valuable position player in baseball. Yeah, uh, he was he was ahead of Yelich until I think yesterday actually when Yelich hit an was it yesterday or two days ago when Yelich hit another homer. Yeah, I mean he is he is point point one war behind him, so they are effectively the the same, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Look at that. Look at that. One sixty five WRC plus. Good job, Paul. Mm-hmm. Did you? I can't recall now. Did you pick them to win the division when we did our staff predictions? I'm pretty sure I picked the Cubs. Oh, wow. I think I pick the same teams every year to win all of the divisions. <laughs> I pick the Nationals every year. I pick the Dodgers every year. I think I pick the Cubs every year. Indians, Astros, Yankees, or Red Sox. Yeah, well, I don't know. That Cleveland team has some explaining to do. Yeah. I, I finally stopped picking Clayton Kershaw to win the Cy Young. I think this is... that that was a pretty. Um, that is one little tidbit of our staff predictions that I actually do recall. I believe this was the first year in. I went back through for as far back as Google would reliably return return results for me, but this was like the first year since 2012 that. Kershaw did not receive a single Cy Young vote from our staff. He did not get even one. We were we were very heavily in on Max Scherzer, which is proving to be fine. And also we liked Noah Syndergaard, which is, you know, a little more mixed. Well, Craig, I am conscious of the fact that we have talked about the things that we had planned on talking about, and also one thing that we did not plan on talking about, and also that I have a thing that I need to edit. And so, and you have to be done uh, by noon your time regardless. So I think that what we will do is we will call it there. And then we will plan to, I think, maybe a little bit closer to the Major League Draft, have you back on to talk about your draft pick valuation stuff. Does that sound like a good plan to you? That sounds fine by me. Okay. Because that uh, is a, a good fun piece that people should read. It's very illuminating and will get more and more relevant as we approach the amateur draft, which is shockingly early in June this year. But folks should go read all of Craig's good work at Fangraphs. I will link to the pieces that we discussed here uh, in the blog post that goes up about this so that folks can uh, check those out if they haven't had a chance to read them yet. And Craig, thank you so much for taking time away from your adorable baby to uh, talk to us on Fangraphs Audio. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>